This episode is brought to you by Eastern Bank, the largest commercial bank headquartered in Massachusetts, with more than two centuries of service to the various communities it serves. Eastern supports investing in people and places that are poised to make a difference, doing good things to help people prosper. To learn more about Eastern Bank, please visit easternbank.com. That's easternbank.com. Hi, I'm Juliet Mayers. Welcome to Entering the Inspiration Zone with Juliet Mayers, a podcast for business professionals and entrepreneurs seeking positive connection and professional development. As an accomplished author, speaker, DEI strategist, and member of Forbes Coaches Council, I am living the dream and I love helping others achieve their dreams. Each episode, I will share with you actionable steps that you can take to build the work and life you've imagined. Welcome. In today's episode, I am so thrilled to have as my guest, Michael Curry, the president and CEO of the League of Community Health Centers. Michael is also a member of the National NAACP Board of Directors, a professor, and so much more. I'm actually going to have him tell you a little bit more about his story. But what we're going to talk about today is titled The Road Less Traveled. And this really picks up on our, as you know, we have this dream, plan, create, achieve framework that I use And I would put this under the title of create, someone who has achieved amazing success by not necessarily following a path, a typical path, but has really engaged a lot of his amazing talents, network, and commitment to community, wellness, and so much more. So I'm really excited about this. And so let me welcome Michael Curry. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you, Juliet. Wonderful to have you. So we're going to start, Michael, if you could share with our listeners your journey. Well, you know, I I think it's aptly titled A Road Less Traveled because I'm not sure uh, how many people I come across who are in a position and in the positions of the men who've gone the particular journey that I've gone You know, I tell people it's one thing to think about the fact that, you know, I'm a CEO, a president and CEO of a a pretty major nonprofit in Massachusetts that is an organization representing 52 community health centers across the state, over a million patients, over 300 practice sites across the state. One in seven people are served by a health center in Massachusetts, one in two in Boston. It's interesting when I tell people I serve on the nation's oldest and largest civil rights organization, and I've been on that board elected nationally, not locally, nationally. Members across the country have elected me to the national board three times. So I serve on the national board of the organization. But none of that is as significant as where I come from, which mm-hmm. I think is to the point of the road less traveled. Yeah. I'm a child of a single parent from Alabama who moved here, uh, Juliet, as you remember the book uh, from Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Sons. Yes. Leaving the the Jim Crow South, the discriminatory, economic, oppressed communities in Alabama, and moving to Boston to eventually raise her children. 
and grew up in the housing projects, grew up in crimes overrun by drugs and addiction, which we now refer to as substance use disorder, overrun by poverty and racism, over-militarization and policing, and so many other you know, poor schools, bad schools, unequal treatment in terms of health care and high morbidity and mortality rate. And all those things are usually the barriers that deter us from pursuing our dreams and being creative to your sort of roadmap that you've laid out. And it's only but for the grace of God that I was able to still have a dream, uh, yes. that I was still able to see that dream. And then I was still able to be creative about what my pathway was, right? I didn't have great schools for most of my academic career until I got to maybe high school. I didn't have a lot of mentors uh, who had achieved being an attorney like I am now to right. guide me through that. Uh, so when I say a, a road less travel and, and when I think about my career, I think about a whole bunch of people along the way who handed me off mm-hmm. to the next person, to the next advisor. And I think about resilience, which I think we don't talk enough about, particularly as we talk about black and brown folks. And the circumstances we've had to endure. And then um, the blessing. Um, I wouldn't I'd be remiss on your interview on your podcast. if I didn't talk about the the glory of God. And I don't you know, talk often about my faith, but I don't think you could have gone through and seen the things that I've seen and experienced without divine intervention, really helping you overcome and survive some of the things that I've had to, to endure. Yeah. And and I know, Michael, because I've known you for many, many years and I've seen the perseverance and the passion. I also think it's why the work that you do with the NAACP is so impactful because it comes from a a very real place for you and that authenticity shows up in your leadership. So, So thank you for all that you do. So you mentioned, obviously, this road less traveled, also your mentors and so forth. And at the same time, you wouldn't have gotten to where you are if you didn't seek out, because as you said, you didn't have them. If you didn't seek out mentors, if you didn't seek out advisors, if you didn't listen, because one of the things I find with some folk is that they don't listen necessarily to advice and don't necessarily look to others who can be helpful. So if there's one takeaway there, I would say is even though you have ascended to such heights, you continue to listen and to seek advice. And that's, I think, the mark of a lot of very successful people. So thank you for that. And I also know you've done a lot of work, Michael, both in your role as the CEO of the League of Community Health Centers and also on behalf of Black and Brown communities to bring this issue of wellness to life. And I had the pleasure of actually having a webinar that you were so kind to participate in on mental health. Talk to us about why wellness is so important. And also from your personal perspective, some of the things that you do to ensure and to live a well life. Well, you know, I think... Generally, people across this country and across the globe need to prioritize their health, their their teeth, their eyes, their mental health, um, their overall physical health. There's a picture over my shoulder of Rebecca Lee Crumpler. She's the first African-American physician 
in the 19th century. So we think about African-American female physician, 19th century. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I always put that in context. We're talking about a time period in history where women were not treated equally, a time period where we were just coming out of slavery. Yeah. And a year before Juneteenth, right? We're talking mm-hmm. June, June 19th, 1865, when they freed those slaves in Galveston. Months prior to that, she became the first Black female physician in the country, and which is amazing when you think about right, it, right. during slavery. Wow. And she said, they seem to forget there's a cause for every ailment and it may be in their power to remove it. Hmm. They seem to forget there's a cause for every ailment and it may be in their power to remove it. So I think that's the question for today is how do we remove the causes of the ailments that we have? How do we deal with the untreated trauma, particularly as I have been an advocate for for black and brown communities? where there's been over-policing, where there's been racism uh, writ large and its many manifestations, where there's been poor schools, bad schools, and uh, higher rates of disease. You know, how do we now figure out what are the underlying causes of that has been, you know, my lifelong mission. And mental health is a part of that. Right. One of the statements, the, the quotes that I've become known for, Juliet, and you and I come out of Black families, we often say as a point of resilience in the black community is that black don't crack Mm. and black don't crack usually is the resilience of our skin. It means we can lay out in the beach and our skin is just resilient by the time we get 70, 80, but it was never really about just that, right? Our family said that because it meant that we didn't crack through slavery, 1619 to 1865. And then of course the oppression that happened after that during Reconstruction and during Black Codes and Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. during the civil rights movement and the oppression of that period of time and racism today that we didn't crack. So Black don't crack. But I ask the question when it comes to mental health to audiences that I speak to and particularly to mental health providers, I say Black don't crack, but isn't the cracking on the inside? Because there's no way in the world you can endure those conditions, forced poverty, bad schools, Right. Uh, though there's brilliance in everybody and there's brilliance in black and brown folks to be um, diminished in your brilliance and then not think that that's not cracking. So that to me, that's the drive by shooting. That's the un- chronic unemployment. That's the anger that we see play out on our televisions. And we have an obligation to figure out the cause for every ailment. Right. Because it may be in our power to do something about it. Right. And when you've said we don't talk about resilience, I I think we talk about resilience. We just do it in a different way because I know, and you've highlighted some very real things. And and I know you've done a lot of work around health disparities. And when I think about, you know, the whole notion of resilience, and we actually had one of our guests talk about it here on this podcast as well, for those who want to check that out, it's also about the fact that it's amazing that we have even continued and gotten to where we are, given all the all of the things that you've mentioned, Michael, right? In terms of all of the forces that that come against us. But I also hear you saying that we've got to watch out for saying things like that because oftentimes we may explain away or not speak out about things because we have to give this, we feel we have to give this exterior veneer of everything being okay when on the inside people are hurting. And we've seen that definitely with COVID-19 and the disparate impact 
on black and brown people and all of the challenges that came for the people who were essential workers, many of whom were also black and brown. You make me think about, you know, one of the things that we talk about in health disparities, and this is the 20 year anniversary of the Institute of Medicine's report on equal treatment that says that doctors, providers don't treat patients of color the same. That was a revelation for some and validation for many others who have been saying that for decades, if not centuries. That's only 20 years ago, and we haven't moved the needle too much. And you make me think about, you know, the reality is we know that we have challenges in our health system that people think of us as being above pain, that Black, I mean, providers generally, but particularly white providers will go through their medical education and subscribe to this notion that Black and brown folks, particularly African-Americans, have a higher threshold of pain. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's a stereotype. That's not true. Right. However, I I use this term black tax. Mm. If you think about what a tax is, right, people levy a tax on you. Right. That's a a tax to assume that you don't need medication, pain medication, because you have a higher threshold of pain, that you don't need an alternative treatment to amputation because we're just going to amputate your leg, which data shows that black and brown folks are sent to amputation as a treatment or as a a response to their condition versus alternative means. So we're now having these revelations around the tax that some people pay. But I also believe we sometimes levy a tax on ourselves. So even the notion that Black don't crack is a tax that we put on ourselves, that we don't crack when in fact it is human, right? natural to crack under the conditions, right? So we now have to say, no, I do need to go see a provider about my mental health conditions because I lost a loved one to cancer or because I've experienced a drive-by shooting in my neighborhood or at my school. I've experienced sexual abuse or trauma in some way. Mm -hmm. We can no longer levy that tax, apply that tax to ourselves because quite frankly, without embellishment, it's killing us. Right. And we need to do something about that. Yeah. And wouldn't you say some of that has to do with culture? Or do you think that's the case? And and by that, I mean, I know for me, as you know, I'm from Barbados, West Indies. I was brought up to be proud and to not share your business with other people, to be strong. And and so you're acculturated and and brought up in a context where, and quite frankly, also the, the context that if you show your vulnerability, that actually two can kill you. Right. And so there's a a double bind of balancing the bicultural worlds in which we live that I think also adds to the to the challenge for many. Is that something you would agree with? It's okay to disagree with me if you you, you I I think there's the duality of our lives. And and the reality is we have to balance a lot of different interests and sometimes they're competing. So, you know, folks in general, people in general, no matter what race, gender, age, sexual orientation, whatever you are, are balancing these same interests. They're thinking, okay, never let them see you crack. Right. Right. I don't want to let my family or the external community see me crack. I can't show them that I'm depressed. I can't show them that I'm breaking down. I can't show them that I'm burnt out at work. I can't show that side because it'll diminish my standing. And when I say standing, you know, it's a legal term, but standing in our house, yeah. standing amongst our friends and neighbors and our colleagues. So that's the general concern. 
But then if you think about it in terms of the extra layer of being marginalized communities um, or black and brown and people dealing with racism, that extra burden uh, becomes pretty significant when you not you can't let them see you crack. Right. But there's a price to pay in that when I talk about competing interests or competing priorities. The reality is, is that we do have to guard against cracking in a way that could hurt our careers or our Mm -hmm. relationships. But the most important thing is to put that mask on and survival. And if your mental health is not right, if your cancer is not treated, if your diabetes is ignored, Mm -hmm. if your eyesight is not treated, you know, cared for in the long run, we all lose. And I I connect your health Mm -hmm. to our health. Right. So I say we all lose when you're not healthy. Right. And I think we have to start thinking of that that way, that we have to get beyond these taxes that people put on us and that we put on ourselves. Right. And say, no, I want to live healthy and I want to live a long life and I want to stretch this out as long as I can and live as healthy as I can. And I'm going to do that with the same passion I would do anything else in life with a job, pursue a career. Right. There's a long term benefit of loving on yourself that I think we have yet to realize. And I I say that not in judgment. I'm trying to figure it out too. How do I love on me more? Yeah. So I can be healthy mentally, physically, and live a longer life. Right. Yeah. When you mentioned the mask and I thought, you know, for, for many, many years, and I have to include myself in this, quite frankly, I wore the mask, right? And for those of you who are wondering, what are you talking about? The mask of you have to live up to the expectations. You have to make sure that you people don't see you as people say, see you sweat or that your mistakes are not shown, particularly in the workplace because of, unfortunately, the unconscious bias and in some cases, outright bias of others for whom this notion that, you know, you you should be happy, you have a job. Yeah. Right. I do think quite honestly, that shifted a lot in many circumstances. And I have seen some progress. A lot of the work I do is around diversity, equity, and inclusion, working with leaders to help them understand bias, to help them build systems and processes to mitigate for that, but also to help people understand the very real thing that you're talking about, that you cannot treat everyone the same, right? That you need to build equitable systems that take into account the many taxes and the many injustices that uh, so many of our Black and Brown brothers and sisters and LGBTQ community are dealing with. So I just wanted to raise that because oftentimes we talk about authenticity and we talk about being yourself and transparent and blah, 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 and all of that. And for a lot of people, that is a very measured path given all of the biases and all of the other issues that people are dealing with. The only thing I would slightly disagree with you, Juliet, on is the notion that it's better. I think what is improving, to your point, is that more and more folks and organizations are hiring, promoting, creating space for DEI, JEDI, DIB, diversity, inclusion, belonging, right? These terms, justice, the J and JEDI. We're creating spaces for that. Now, the question, and and because this is so new, it's really last two years, though there were some DEI leaders before, there's been a proliferation of DEI initiatives and leaders. But I always ask the question, one is, 
Are they funded? Fully funded. <laughs> Do they have staff? Do they have authority? Can they influence other leaders in the organizations to change policy and evaluations mm-hmm. and retention and, and uh, bonuses and all those things that could culturally has right. limited and uh, removed equity from their organizations for generations? That being said, I'm also on the other side. I get the complaints that often come in from uh, employees. Mm-hmm. That hasn't changed. People still feel like they're putting on that mask. They still feel like they're in that spotlight, that unfair shadow uh, or that unfair spotlight that says to them, you just can't be good like everyone else. You have to be exceptional. And when you're not exceptional, even your good is warranting criticism and judgment right. in a way that is not equitable. So I think when you've had generations of inequity yeah. in our institutions, that's government, that's for-profit, non-for-profit, that's all of our sectors. It's going to take a long time to extract ourselves, to remove that um, from how we deal with equity writ large in our organizations. And that's going to take time. That's going to be right. going to take intentionality. Right. And I would argue, and I know people don't feel good about this sometimes, it's going to take disruption. Because yes. disruption, even in a corporate setting, we, we do it all the time in corporate. You and I come out of a corporate setting. We know that disruption is natural, just not disruption around equity, right? We will disrupt new leaders come in, they change reporting roles, they right. change funding sources, they will change a strategy, a strategic direction. But we don't think of disruption in the context of, I want equity centered at the center of my organization, mm-hmm. and I'm going to upset how people think about their own jobs. And how accountable they are for doing it. To me, that's where we're headed, hopefully, with all these DEI initiatives. Yeah, well, I will agree to disagree with you on part of that. Because I, of course, I'm in the space and doing a lot of the work. And I totally agree with you that there are a lot of (laughs) Johnny-come-latelys who are talking about DEI and, and are not doing the kinds of things that you are. And they are also some organizations who are taking it very seriously and are disrupting the status quo. Is there, might appear to some as chaos and confusion? Yes. However, it's necessary because the process of change requires, as you said, disrupting the status quo. And for that means some people are going to be uncomfortable, but you have to go there in order to get past or get through, because you never really totally get past it, to get through the change to the other side. But I, I do agree that it's going to be a long road. It's not something that, okay, two years and now we're we're now woke. And so everything's wonderful. And the very things that you're talking about are so critical for particularly our black and black brown employees. And so I applaud the work that you have done, both in terms of the medical field and your assistance there, as well as the work that you're doing in, in talking about very issues that have been hidden for a long time, you know, the, the mental health and really being real about that because it's so necessary and people need to hear it. And one more question that I want to ask you, and then we're, I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell people how they can get in contact with you. One other thing that you had talked about in the past, and I'd like to hear from you, given all that you're doing and your path to the wonderful work that you're doing, what do you personally do? You know, because I know you've done a lot in terms of your own personal health and wellness and so forth. So talk to us about what you have done and maybe a couple of tips that you would recommend that others do. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many things like, you know, when I think about my mental health or my physical health. So one, probably more on the physical side, but I guess they overlap is I try to work out a lot. So for me, I was going through a really difficult time, both professionally and personally, and running helped. So, you know, I, I jokingly tell people I was like Forrest Gump. You know, every time I was dealing with some stress and trauma, I would just get up. I don't care if it was midnight or five o'clock in the morning or lunchtime, I would get up and go run. And I was running at one point half marathons, not official marathons, but 13 miles of running two, three times a week. Wow. And that running, though, it kind of I precipitously dropped weight. I think I dropped like 60 pounds. Actually, it was definitely 60 pounds, 57. 257 down to 197. So if you saw me, you say he was sick. I actually was healthy, was very healthy. I was eating healthier. I was running more. So I think, you know, the moral to that story is exercise, right? Is so key to your mental health and your physical health. And I know it, we find it hard to do because of the priorities in our life. You know, if you have children or grandchildren, or if you have work demands and you're a CEO, you know, what this really comes down to really simply is whether you prioritize yourself over everything else. Now, I would argue you should prioritize yourself even over your kids at times, because in the long run, you need to be here when they're having their first child, right? You need to be here when they're getting married. And the only way that you can secure that future is by taking care of yourself. So, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, applies to our health as well. So what are you doing daily? And I'm, I'm still working on this myself. What are you doing daily to live a healthier life, to prolong your life, to stave off diseases that are way too common in our families? Because I know they are mine. Heart disease, yeah. cancer, yeah. so many forms of cancer, diabetes. What are you doing to stave off severe acute illnesses? So that's one. I try to do that. I think of that consciously. I almost believe that every time I remove stress from my life and I I go running or I work out, I've added five minutes, right? I'm not exaggerating. I literally think of myself (laughs) as adding five minutes to my life. Now, whether that is true or not, who knows, but I feel that way. And I think that that if we operated that way, we prioritize ourselves. Sue, mental health specifically, I know this is always tough, but I've decided that one is I take a, a regular audit of myself and my mental health that I try to evaluate whether I have the right people in my life mm-hmm. that are lifting me and not tearing me down, that are supporting me and loving on me versus um, marginalizing me or, or seeking to, to hurt me. And I know that, you know, we don't often think of it in that term, but I do believe no matter what age you are, there are people who are drawn to you that are not there to uplift you and will hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you remove those people? And then sometimes, Juliet, and I hate to say this, sometimes it's family. Um, well, <laughs> and you got to make a conscious decision. Maybe, you know, maybe you don't lose, you, you should not lose contact with family, but you may have to change your former communication with them because your survival matters mm-hmm. and your mental health matters. So for me, you know, I've had to reevaluate friendships. I don't have the same friends that I had at 20, that I had at 30, that I had at 40. I tend to now try to have people around me who are my cheerleaders and I cheerlead them and they Mm -hmm. love on me like I love on them. And then I feel healthier because of that. Yeah. Yeah. That came in my late forties, early fifties that I started doing that. It was late. Yeah. I think that that's a part of the key to what I do 
that then translates on more success in your career. Because when you're right. healthier physically, right. right, that means you don't have to call in sick. That means you're on point in that meeting, right? In right. that conversation, you have more time to plan and strategize about your, your career and your role for your organization. And your mental health is the same. If, you, if you're mentally well, then you can operate, navigate things in a much better way. And then the, the fruits of that bear out with promotions, with salary, with wealth building. I'm starting to see that now. You know, I just got an honorary degree this weekend from uh, Labre College. I recently got an honorary Congratulations. degree. Yeah, thank you, from yeah. Curry College. Yep. And I think those, that's the fruits of the labor when you've been right. working in the field pun intended, mm-hmm. <laughs> you've been working in the field <laughs> for so long and you've been struggling and fighting that at some point people start to recognize that you're here and that you matter and, right. and that you um, are committed to the things you say you're committed to. Yeah. Well, absolutely. You absolutely matter and the things that you're doing matter. And I'm so grateful for your friendship and also the work that you're doing to help so many people. So congratulations on all of those very well-deserved honors. I think sometimes we don't take the time to tell people how much we appreciate them while they are alive and well. So so know that I appreciate you and really uh, applaud the work that you're doing. So Michael, tell us how people can get in contact with you. Yeah, so I think one is the Mass League would encourage people to reach out. We are uh, the state's what we call primary care association. And you can find us on social media. If you go to LinkedIn, you'll look up Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. We are also on our website is massleague.org, I believe. And M-A-S-S League, L-E-A-G-U-E dot org. Check us out, see what we do. Uh, I think you'll be pretty impressed by the wide range of things that we do to support community health centers and their patients across the state. And then uh, we're located at 40 Court Street, downtown Boston, right outside of City Hall, ninth and 10th floor of of that building. And you can feel free to reach out to us, uh, 426-2225 is our main line. I think that still uh, directs you into our staff at the Mass League as well. But we've not been in the office, so you know, landlines. Are like, uh, I feel like landlines are going to go away very soon. So I'm like, okay, do we still even use landlines? So, so should we just take out that number, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you can leave it in because I think it still works. But uh, okay. it'll be, you know, if you feel like there's some uh, connection with the work that you're doing in this space, feel free to reach out. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, and. You know, so today there's so many words of wisdom. I'm not even going to try to recap it all. But the key things that I want our listeners to walk away with is how important it is to take care of your physical health and your mental health and to make sure you prioritize yourself first. And the other thing that I would say that uh, struck me right off the bat is the fact that you may not have had an easy path or a direct path. However, you had a dream, you had a plan, you created the future that you wanted, and you are now living it out and supporting so many others in doing so. So thanks again, Michael. So until next time, we hope to see you back on Entering the Inspiration Zone. Thank you for joining us on Entering the Inspiration Zone. 
Until next time, we would love to hear from you. So if you'd like to join our mailing list, please send an email to info at inspirationzonellc.com. That's info at inspirationzonellc.com. And be sure to put podcast in the subject line. Thank you and have a fabulous day.